the Oscar goes and to. And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to. Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seat. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer, Captain. All real man. Love is, is Love. too weak a word. Stay back. I loathe you. I loathe you. I love you. I love you. I did as you said. Don't lie! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to Nomadland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 263 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording is 10.07 a.m. on October 3rd, 2021. Here to join me today, I have Cody Derricks. Hiya. And Dan Baer. Good morning. All right, everyone. So the New York Film Festival is now currently in its second week as of today, and we'll be closing out on Friday with the closing night film, Parallel Mothers, from Pedro Almodovar. Very much looking forward to both that and finally seeing Dune. Oh, I'm so close. I can't believe I've made it uh, this far. (laughs) But we're finally there. We're finally there. Uh, But there's been a lot of exciting stuff happening here in New York uh, with the festival these last couple of days. Uh, A lot of very exciting international films. uh, Also tying into last week's poll where we asked everyone which movie they feel today is the front runner for best international feature film. Uh, But also we got reactions for No Time to Die this past week, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about in regards to this week's poll. We got the trailer for the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, Licorice Pizza. We'll be talking about that. Uh, So there are these little tidbits here and there throughout the week uh, that we're going to touch upon in today's episode. But first and foremost, to kick us off here, I want to ask what everyone has been watching this past week. So, Cody, why don't we uh, start with you? Because I know myself and Dan have a couple of uh, New York Film Festival titles that we want to get to. (laughs) Yeah, I'll let you boys take your time. I only have uh, one major new release I saw um, that I want to highlight, obviously, and that was... uh... (laughs) Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, Dan, I think it was you who said, like, the stage show's success is mystifying to you. And Mm -hmm. I had not seen the show, and I didn't really know the plot. I only knew the songs, which are, you know, when you listen to the cast album, you can't really pick up on the plot too well. They're all kind of vague and not specific, (laughs) which is, you know, the Pasek and Paul way. Uh, But... Wow, I can't agree more. How is this the toast of Broadway that, you know, like four years ago? I don't really know Um, the plot. Oh, my God. I could not believe what was happening (laughs) in front of me. (laughs) It just kind of happens. And it's like, this is really the the movie and we're not going to we're not going to analyze any further. Okay, got it. Uh, The. I got to say, you know, it's they're getting ragged on a lot, especially the leading man. But I have to say the cast and yes, that includes Ben Platt, mostly pretty good. Uh, you know, they're yeah. they're not the problem with this movie. The problem is the script and the absolutely lifeless direction from Stephen Chbosky. He just kind of have his, his characters wander around while they're singing. Sometimes they sit down and then they'll stand back up. And that's about <laughs> all you get out of it. Yeah, this was it was not for me. It was a, it was just a shame because I'm a huge musical fan. So 
even musicals I'm not explicitly a fan of, I want to be, you know, good to a degree for the for the good of the art form. Mm -hmm. But this uh, this is definitely a step backwards, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I God, if you want to hear my thoughts, you can listen to our podcast review on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going to leave mine at, too. But uh, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that you finally saw it, Cody. And also, too, I'm kind of shocked that being the Broadway fan that you are, that you were this much in the dark for so long about what that movie is or that show is actually about. <laughs> yeah, well, I like to go in blind, you know, like I'll listen yeah. to cast albums. And if that gives me a spoiler or something, I don't really care that much. But otherwise, I like to let the. The, the plot itself be kind of a surprise for me. Yeah, completely. And I can't afford those damn tickets, so no way. Have I seen <laughs> Anything else or? Uh, that's the only major release I saw. I saw um, The Amusement Park, which is a George Romero film that was lost. Oh, the yeah. It was commissioned by the Lutheran Society, <laughs> uh, and it was meant to explore the dangers and the like uh, societal pressures of aging and ageism. And it's pretty wild. It's kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, a kind of Lynchian exploration of uh, what it's like to age in a society that wants nothing to do with you all set in an amusement park. Not exactly scary, which is kind of what I was hoping it would be. It was kind of just more depressing, um, but it was like 50 minutes long. So if you're looking for a, a strange little oddity from the 70s that was just discovered and restored, definitely check it out. It's on Shutter. Awesome. I love it. Dan Baer, what about yourself? Um, yeah, so I had a really interesting week. Um, I On Monday, I had a fantastic NIF double, double feature of Red Rocket by Sean Baker and Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, uh, which was a very entertaining day at the movies. Red Rocket is probably Sean Baker's most consistently funny film. I don't know that it's that it's more funny than Tangerine at the very least, but it, it also has, I think the least emotional impact of any of his previous movies. And that held it back a little bit from like true greatness for me, but this like look at this sort of sideways look at the American dream and how it is changing uh, is really, really interesting. The whole cast is fantastic, but Simon Rex is absolutely as good as you've heard. He is kind of brilliant in it. Reminded me a lot of uh, Matthew McConaughey in Magic Mike, that sort of fast talking, constantly selling someone on yourself, almost delusional, but not quite. Um, it's he is so good. It's unbelievable how he takes like such a loser type of character who yeah. also is morally very extremely questionable. Mm -hmm. And yet his performance gets us to really like him regardless. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because of how much energy Simon Rex brings to this performance, like the level of enthusiasm that he just has in his physical like delivery of some of these lines um it's like really riveting to watch i i sadly do not believe that he will 
get an Oscar nomination for it, but <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, I do think that Goffman Indie Spirits will recognize him, and I think critics also will go to bat for him because, for my money, it's one of the best lead performances I've seen this year. This oh, is maybe a so. um, yeah. moot point, but do we think if the Golden Globes do anything, he could get into musical core comedy? Oh my God, I would love for that to happen. Like you have no that would idea. Be amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, but I'm not gonna bet on it honestly right and i mean there are like nine leading men from musicals this year which you know by fact of them being musicals means they'll probably get nominated but we'll see right yeah that that's tough to say i would love it though and benedetta (laughs) dan how much am i gonna love this movie oh cody Cody, come on (laughs) so much I, i i will tell you like even even the response out of Khan and like hearing you know you could not help but like with Titan, you hear about the car fucking with Benedetta. You hear about the the, the phallus, I yeah. guess I'll say. And um, even like knowing those things, I was not expecting it to be anywhere near as ridiculously entertaining as it was. It this is one of the funniest movies of the year. Um, in my own like. Uh, personal recreating con film festival as of now as of all the con films i've seen this one would win the my palm door <laughs> i think it's absolutely fantastic i thought virginie Efira, who plays benedetta is out of this world great um, charlotte rampling is so much fun in this i the whole thing i mean and when I realize that it's taking place during the Black Death, I'm like, oh, yeah, we're literally living through this. Wow. OK, I was I was completely bowled over by it. It is the most fun I've had watching a movie this year, I think. Um, and for the movie about lesbian nuns, I was not expecting that. <laughs> Any protesters at your screening? No, sadly. Staged or otherwise? Which leads me to believe I'm almost like, I, I have no doubt that the protesters were real, but I'm almost wondering if they were called by the film's marketing team or by Paul Verhoeven himself because... Right, he slipped a little pamphlet under the church door. <laughs> I did find it uh, suspect that they showed up for the first screening and they didn't even stick around for when the audience left. Like, somebody at my screening was like, you know, if they were really committed, they would have stayed all the way till the end. <laughs> They're like, how long is this movie? And then, of course, they didn't show up for the uh, second screen that Dan went to. So it was like, what's the deal here, people? <laughs> well, they may have just gone to the one where they knew the cameras would be at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was still a very, very brilliant, uh, you know, PR uh, moment for the for the film because, you know, it's that kind of thing where any publicity is good publicity. And for a film such as this to be drawing up controversy, quote unquote, uh, it'll yeah. get people to see it when it releases in theaters. So I'm sure IFC was very, very happy about that. Oh, yeah. This is I, I kind of hate that it's opening in the beginning of December because like this is the perfect Christmas movie. Like, Out on the poster. I love it. <laughs> and I also want to just echo that like I was very surprised by the twists and turns that the story took. Uh, so much so that, you know, when we got to like the ending of the movie, especially. I already had it like in my mind a certain way that it was going to go. And I was pretty confident that it was heading that way. That when it didn't, 
I had this moment where I readjusted myself in my seat, leaned forward, put my hands over my, over my mouth, and I was like, oh, where, where, I don't know where this is going anymore. <laughs> like, and so it was very, very exciting. It was thrilling. Um, seeing it with a packed audience uh, that also were just eating it up was a thrill. Yeah, I I can't recommend enough that people go check this out in the theaters uh, when they can because just seeing it with an audience, I think, made it all that much better. It really did. Like, and there are just things that happen, and I think part of it is that, like, it, you know, you know Paul Verhoeven, but even still, going into this movie, you don't really expect it to be as hilariously funny as it is, and it is very, very funny, and it announces like basically within the first five minutes there is a piece of gross-out humor that provoked a huge laughter from my crowd that saw it. And, like, right then, it was like, oh, okay, we know what this is now. And everyone was, like, having so much fun. It it is the most surprisingly fun movie of the year. Truly. I saw the documentary The Rescue. Yay! Which I, (laughs) I... I was in tears... Like at least three separate times, it is so well done. the The mixture of uh, actual like on the ground footage and reenactment footage is seamless. It is so seamless that I really thought they shot everything just at the like they they were somehow got a crew there in the middle of this crazy international search that happened in what I think twenty eighteen. Um, for this uh, Thai soccer team that went missing in this underground cave. I had the same reaction too, Dan. Like I legitimately thought that the reenactments, some of them might have been real because they're just so expertly well staged. They use the real divers as well. Like there's, it isn't like actors playing them. So yeah, there was an element of it for me where I just kept thinking, oh, wow, did they actually have camera crews like down there? And then like, you know, you slap yourself and you're like, snap out of it, silly. No, of course they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's no way. No, <laughs> but it's a really that that one in particular. I think that uh, Nat Geo has a real potential winner on their hands here following oh, yeah. in uh, Free Solo's uh, footsteps where I could see that film uh, going all the way again. Because it's a Herculean effort that took place that I don't think people really understand just how many thousands of people it took to put that operation together. Oh, my God. Um, It's uplifting. It's funny. Like, the divers are, like, very endearing and pretty hilarious. Yes. Like, it really had everything that you could want in a documentary, even if you know how it's going to end. Yeah, it is a huge crowd pleaser i i did not remember all the details of this story i remember it happening but i don't remember like the did everyone make it out alive bit and when it got to the ending i I was in in such tears in such tears that the blander than pasic and paul end credit song totally like threw me overboard (laughs) Like, it is the most generic believe in yourself and overcome the odds song you've ever heard in your life. And yet I was like, yes, yes, it's so beautiful. It's perfect through my tears as the movie's ending. <laughs> so also watch out for it in that category. 
But as far as I'm concerned, this is the front runner for best documentary feature. As much as I love Flea, this is the film to be. And also, too, just be very, very careful about that uh, that buzzword there, Dan, when, it, when talking about the documentary feature race. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all know how uh, every year this seems to go with the uh, doc branch if we have an early front runner. It's true. It's true. But I'd rather it be uh, the rescue than Flea. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I also saw Titan for a second time, which listened to the, our podcast review from yesterday. It's a great discussion. And everyone, please go see Titan. And then I also saw The Last Duel. Yep, Dan and I saw this one together. Which it was better than I was expecting. I think for me, like... Yeah, I think it for me it met the expectation. Um, it didn't yeah. exceed my expectations. I feel like that's what we always say with a new Ridley Scott movie. Well, not really. I, I have a lot of times with Ridley Scott where he does not meet my expectations. Sure, <laughs> but I feel like when it's good, it's always kind of like, huh, like The Martian. You know, people were like, oh, I didn't expect good. this. Yeah, it's oh, a good movie. Right. Nobody's and- nobody's expectations are kind of ex- like are are. Uh, what they thought they would be if it's good. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, House of Gucci might be another story, but (laughs) I do feel like there's more like a higher level of expectation for that film because of the cast. But with this, I think we all went in a little hesitant because of the subject material, uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck writing it. uh, Some of the makeup work that we saw in the trailers was a little (laughs) off-putting. And of course, you know, the movie's two and a half hours long, but there were a lot of smart choices in it that, for me, worked really, really well. I think the biggest issue I have with it, funny enough, is actually uh, the editing of the film and its pacing. Yeah. Because the first like act, which is told from Matt Damon's perspective, um, is a bit of a slog. And then Driver's perspective, which is the second act, is... Um, is much better because you're seeing the same scenes play out from his perspective and they're just a little bit different and it makes the movie so much more interesting now to see uh both of those scenes you know play up against each other and then Jodie Comer dominates the third and final act and she gets the uh, bulk of the runtime she gets like a whole hour uh dedicated to her and that is the best act of the movie I mean like so it, it progressively gets better as it goes, and the story just keeps yes. getting more enriched. Um, and then and then they never show the duel. They save the duel until the very end, which I was like, yes, because I was worried that they were going to show the duel throughout the movie. Um, but by holding it all the way to the end and now seeing the story play out from all these different perspectives and they tell you what the truth is. So there's no ambiguity. There's a certain level of emotional stakes that by the time we get to that duel that you're just very, very invested in how it's going to go. Oh, I I, I got very, very invested. I was like talking back to the screen and everything during that final. Oh, yeah. Dan was like saying no or like get him like Dan was like really interacting (laughs) with this thing. (laughs) Yeah. the, The lead up to the duel and the way the duel is shot and edited is really tremendous. But I think that's my biggest problem with this movie. Like the editing with in scenes is really good but the editing between scenes the scene transition very awkward scene transitions yeah yeah like it's almost film breaking there is some the early on there is like a jump between one scene where 
um, Matt Damon and Adam Driver's characters are like doing something. And then there's a jump cut to another scene with the two of them where it looks like they've been separated for a long time and are meeting again without any establishing shots or anything. And I, I was very thrown by it. Like it was almost film breaking. It's also like a little tricky too, because Scott is showing scenes from one person's perspective in these, um, amongst these three acts. So he's not showing the other perspective and in normal movie making, you know, you show a scene from both sides and you get the proper amount of coverage to establish that and so on and so forth. So it is, it, it is very awkwardly edited and staged sometimes to the point where, um, I I was like I said it gets better as it goes because you start getting the full yeah. picture of everything but early on it was it was it was a little frustrating I got to admit and and I will say that the screenplay <laughs> I mean for me it was pretty obvious which parts of this movie were written by Damon and Affleck and which parts were written by Nicole Hall of Center there there is a subtlety to the way this film takes on uh, gender roles and particularly of the time period and puts everything in context that reeked of hollow centers writing that was so strong. And I absolutely loved that part of it. And there are other scenes that are just like very clearly written. I'll say that. Yeah. It feels like they were going for these big, like, almost catchphrase lines that don't quite land the way I think they wanted them to. But then I could also make the argument as well that the like almost like the inflated sense of ego yeah. is fitting for the two types of characters that right. Damon That's and I was going to ask yeah. if that was intentional. Or like not. It, it, it very well could be. It very well could be. Yeah. So I yeah, it's a fascinating film. I'm probably going to see it again before we do our podcast review of it. Um, and I think that Jodie Comer's performance in it is tremendous. Oh. And uh, I did receive word uh, this week that uh, she is confirmed to be lead for the film, uh, not supporting. And sorry, going to just go off on a little tangent here really quick because I, I got to just like say this. <laughs> um, I did receive some conflicting reports about the humans this week, which I uh, <laughs> instructed uh, the team to act upon in our Oscar predictions. And a lot of people were asking, oh, is going for Oscars or going for Emmys? And it was under my impression, based on some of the KG responses that I received and uh, another colleague who also received uh, similar information, I tried to put two and two together. It backfired. And of course, within minutes of posting our predictions, I got a call from A24. Hey, Matt, uh, we're going for Oscars. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So thanks for the confirmation. So a little bit of a foul up there in that regard. But Jodie Comer, I can say 100 percent going lead. uh, That has been said to me verbatim uh, from the studio. So as she should. So that makes me really happy anyway. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to try to they it's one of those things where you could try to fraud her in supporting and get her a very easy nomination. But given her dominance over the last essentially third plus, (laughs) I will say, of the film and her presence throughout, I, I don't think it's a question that she should be considered a lead. 
It also sounds like that might be thematically icky if she was put in supporting, but that's, yeah. you know. Just a little. <laughs> All right. So then uh, just to finish things off here, um, I'll quickly just go through. I saw the souvenir part two, which I was admittedly dreading because I did not like the original souvenir. I even rewatched it prior to watching part two. And it's probably the surprise of the year for me that I loved this movie. I did a complete 180 on it. I even think it makes the first film even better in retrospective. And I really do feel that both of these movies have to be viewed as a whole, as opposed to their two separate parts. It's definitely a continuation of the story and is something that from Joanna Hogg, um, she was talking about how it was always conceived this way. Like it was always going to be a part one, part two. So for A24 to uh, officially greenlight their first ever sequel and and for it to be this, uh, I say bravo because this was tremendous. I saw Venom Let There Be Carnage and there was a lot of carnage in this movie as far as I was concerned, mm-hmm. <laughs> both in terms of uh, action, but also in terms of how the action was captured. I was not a fan of the uh, set pieces in this. I wasn't a fan of the story. I really wasn't that much of a fan of Woody Harrelson and what he was doing. What I was a fan of and what I did like, and I know that this is kind of the hook for people with these two movies so far, is Tom Hardy is giving this go-for-broke, gonzo-bizarre performance that could very easily fit into a rom-com in terms of his relationship with this uh, alien symbiote that is attached to him at all times. And the bickering, the banter, and everything else that this movie explores and the absurdity of their relationship is much better than the first. And it is like the one element that I think really does make this stand out amongst other superhero films out there and like i said before just god bless tom hardy for fully committing to it because he he is genuinely funny i feel like at times i mean when does he not fully commit <laughs> yeah i mean he he committed uh very very much to uh <laughs> capone oh yeah <laughs> and then uh the last duel which we just finished uh talking about here um also saw no time to die Uh, which I don't want to get into spoilers about necessarily because even though the review embargo is broken, all I'll just say is that for me, this was a good ending for the Daniel Craig era. It's a good send off for him professionally, uh, as I think his performance in this is probably the best of all the movies that he's uh, done. Uh, It also wraps up all of the storylines that they sloppily tried to put together, Inspector. Uh, But it does wrap up everything from that film and everything else uh, in this. So much so that I feel like that that is what the movie functions more as than a, you know, yes, it has these like big action set pieces, but none of them actually were standouts. There are so many other sequences in the other Bond movies that are better than this one. And I'm not saying that they're like poorly executed or anything. They're just like kind of unoriginal, you know, but that's not what this movie's hook is. This movie's hook is the story, the character wrapping things up, saying goodbye. And I think that if you're invested at all in what Daniel Craig has brought to this role over the last 15 years, then it'll be a very emotional and I would say, uh, you know, holistic experience because it is a long movie uh, at almost three hours long. It's the longest James Bond film ever. So 
if you're going to see this in a movie theater, uh, whether it be IMAX or whatever it might be, you're definitely going to get your money's worth because it's a whole lot of movie. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So now, Matt, yeah, mm-hmm. you were way back when in the early days of 2020, you were thinking that this could make a dent in the best picture race. Now, having seen it, do you still think that? Yeah, you know, a lot of my thoughts about that were stemmed from uh, how Logan was received, you know, getting a best adapted screenplay nomination, that also being kind of like a finality for um, Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine and such. I don't think so with this. I do think that there are a number of elements in this movie that are still a little sloppy uh, in terms of the screenplay. And um, I will say that right now I feel very comfortable predicting it for uh, sound, even with only five nominees and original song, of course, for Billie Eilish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Lena Sangren's uh, cinematography in it is really good. I mean, Nothing will ever compete with Skyfall, but going off of that, Hoyt Van Hoytema with Spectre, which I, I think looks very, very good, by the way. Yeah, it's a very lush movie. Yeah. Um, this uh, this movie, like, really leans into these primary saturated colors of, like, uh, green, purple, blue, and there's a lot of really good stuff going on here in terms of the visuals that mm-hmm. you would think that, that they would try to go maybe, like, a darker more you know drenched in shadows kind of a look but no it's very very lush do you uh prefer the no time to die song or the song from king richard oh i'd say at this moment yeah i genuinely need to re-listen to the king richard song if i'm being honest with you i think that the fact that the king richard song is by Beyonce in a movie that will probably be nominated for Best Picture gives it the edge. But because I have more familiarity and have listened to No Time to Die more, my personal preference would be that. But I need to re-listen to the to the King Richard song again. Uh, and then NYFF, uh, just wrapping things up here. I saw a movie called Prayers for the Stolen, uh, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, this was a film that uh, basically, it's like a coming-of-age film that takes place in uh, uh, Mexico, and it's about um, 
like a, a a young girl who is uh growing up and is you know you you follow her relationship with her um with her mother with her friends and there's like kind of this like hovering looming danger over the entire movie because these girls are constantly being stolen from their homes and you kind of get the sense always that danger is right around the corner at every turn but the movie does a really good job of not overbearing us with like any kind of um you know depressive qualities so much um it's it's a really well balanced film and it's quite affecting at times i i would recommend people uh check it out especially if it gets the international uh submission and then i saw um what do we see when we look at the sky and i will just say flat out this was not for me (laughs) (laughs) oh this was two and a half hours long it was an experimental love story um God, I just like it took me like an hour to settle into what this movie was doing in terms of tone, in terms of the pacing. And by the time I like got into it, I I guess I was enjoying it a bit more at that point. But I I, I was kind of I, I will admit I was lost at a certain point. I just I couldn't really, really connect with this movie and what it was going for at a certain point anymore, even though I did find some of its sequences to be charming and, you know, well shot and. But man, yeah, this this just wasn't this wasn't my cup of tea. That was one that I heard a lot of good things about at Berlin. Yeah, and I didn't get to it there, and I wanted to see it during NIF. But the length is just it's very difficult to fit that in. But then, however, last night at uh, Alice Tully Hall, they showed a movie called uh, uh, Akiara, uh, which is a story about a fifteen-year-old girl. Uh, who discovers that her father is a uh, criminal drug dealer. And what I loved about this movie is I loved how a lot of times whenever there is this uh, character in any kind of crime film that we've seen and they have like a, they have a family, uh, they're, they're, they're like a criminal drug lord or something, whatever. Like they're just, you know, they're not a good person. You know, we never ever see like the perspective of the family at this reveal like did they were they upfront with the family and telling them that this is who i am did they try to conceal it from them what was the reaction from everyone when they found this out sort of thing so to tell this movie from the perspective of his daughter who discovers this and what happens to her and her journey throughout this uh reactionary process i found it to be very grounded very believable it avoided melodrama and the uh, lead of this, uh, Swami Rotolo, I thought delivered a very, very magnetic and very strong performance. Mm-hmm. Um, highly recommend checking this one out for sure. I uh, don't know because I believe it's Italy. Because, you know, if it's Italy, then they got to compete with uh, the hand of God. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it'll get the submission, but i got to admit, I kind of liked it more than the hand of God. (laughs) It's really funny to me that the international feature category is basically like um, for for country selections and for the Oscar, it's going to be neon versus Netflix. (laughs) Also, too, one other side note about this movie, if this is of interest to any of you, the score is really, really good for this movie. And when I looked up who did the score, it is get ready. It's Ben Zeitlin and Dan Romer. Oh, shit. Yeah. I love it. So I would highly recommend people check this one out if they can at any point, uh, whether it's uh, playing in your local art house theater or if it's playing at a film festival. I really enjoyed this one a lot. 
And that'll do it for what we've been watching this week. Now, what I want to do is I want to uh, take it over to the polls because there are some talking points that I want to uh, work off of here. So let's take a look and see what the MVP MVP film community voted on for the polls this past week. Hi, guys. I'm Dean. And I'm Daniel. And we're from the Movie Journey Podcast. Where we break down every movie from the IMDb Top 250 list, giving our own thoughts and reviews and any general discussion along the way. We're also home of the Pod V Pod, where we battle other podcasters in various movie games and drafts. We also do reviews of new releases, film tournaments, top five lists, and talk about everything else we've watched as well. We used to be the IMDb Journey Podcast, but since then, we've grown. And matured with age. Yeah, if you don't believe us, why don't you listen to some more genuine testimonies? Oh, hey guys, I uh, I used to like the IMDb Journey podcast, but since then I've found something even better. It's the Movie Journey podcast. Oi, bro, I know I said the IMDb Journey podcast was a good show, but the Movie Journey podcast is so much better. Absolutely for sure, yeah. You know, I used to think that nothing could be funnier than IMDb Journey, but I've now found my joy in Movie Journey podcast. The IMDb Journey podcast is nothing compared to the Movie Journey podcast. Absolutely love this podcast. <laughs> oh, amazing oh, testimonies once again. Absolutely legit and real. Of course. And if you still don't believe those testimonies, go ahead and check out the show for yourself by searching for the Movie Journey podcast. You can find us on all your favourite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. So come along and join our journey. So first up, uh, last week's poll, we asked everyone uh, which movie as of today is the front runner for Best International Feature Film. We asked this question because uh, Dan and myself and a few others are seeing a lot of international feature films now at New York and, of course, the regional film festivals, which will be popping up now over the next couple of weeks here. So, Cody, if you had to say right now international feature number one, what do you have in that place at the moment? Right now I have just because of general praise the worst person in the world, but I could see it being any number of things, obviously. Um you know, I I am not as strong a believer in Flea's chances, especially outside of animated feature, but I could see it being nominated here. Um, but yeah, right now I have worst person in the world. All right, Dan Bear. I second Cody's uh, mention of the worst person in the world, but going by what official country selections we've gotten so far, I think the uh, current front runner is I'm Your Man from Germany, which stars dan stevens which is always a help to have um a big english language film star in your international movie it helps doubly that he speaks flawless english accented german in it (laughs) and i'm gonna echo what cody said uh having now seen the worst person in the world uh that would be my choice for the front runner but a hero is right there and I would definitely watch out for uh, Ashgar for Hardy to uh, possibly contend, contend again for a win because a hero is not as good as a separation, but it's better than the salesman. And I think we all know that he won for the salesman due to um, external factors that were at play during that campaign. Um, so for this to be a better movie, though, uh, I would say watch out for him uh, to win in third. Right. The funny thing with a hero is that I think it has a better chance at above the line stuff than worst person in the world does. But worst person in the world kind of checks a lot of boxes that this category likes. So, I mean, Renata Renziva, the lead actress of this, is so amazing that I would love to see her compete in Best Actress. I would love to see the screenplay also contend. That is my favorite screenplay of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Enters Danielson Lee is also really good in this. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right, let's see what the MVP film community voted on. Number 10, The Golden Lion Winner Happening, which is a movie that none of us have seen yet, but Correct. <laughs> I'm eagerly anticipating it since it won The Golden Lion. And right now, for my money, I think that's the film that France is going to select as their pick this year. Makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's not going to be Titan, so. <laughs> Dan, you'll be happy. Number nine is Benedetta. <laughs> okay. It's really funny that anyone thinks any country is going to submit that. <laughs> Number eight is Drive My Car, which I am seeing in, let me look at the time here. I am seeing that movie in three hours. <laughs> and it's three hours long. Woohoo. There you go. Number seven is Petite Maman. I weirdly could see France choosing that to like make it up to Celine for not selecting Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And it would be a lot harder for anyone to have a problem with that. But I think the timeliness of the plot of Happening will push it towards that. Yeah, and I wonder if Petite Maman being like not even 80 minutes long might be seen as a little bit slight, which I mean, to me, that's a positive. So we'll see. Number six is my personal pick for what I would hope France would select, but it ain't ever going to happen is Tatan. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. (laughs) Number five is Paulo Sorrentino's The Hand of God, which makes sense. You know, in terms of Netflix being behind it, Sorrentino being who he is and everything, I do expect that film to, to get a nomination. Yeah, it's just interesting that the more people see it, the less people's uh, expectations of it being a winner in this category are. Like, I remember for a while, people were like, could it get nominated for Best Picture? And now it's like, that's absolutely not happening. We'll see if anything gets nominated for foreign, like, for international. Number four is A Hero. Number three is Flea. So still going strong there for the animated documentary. I would love it. Number two... Cantus Cal Pedro, Parallel Mothers. Mm-hmm. The issue with Pedro is always, will Spain choose him? Exactly. And number one is the worst person in the world. That, it would honestly make me so happy if that movie would get nominated and win. It's one of the best of the year. I, I want to just say for the record, because I know a lot of people have their passionate favorites in this category. Just missing the cut at number 11 was whether the weather is fine Mm. number 12 was seven prisoners and this is as far as i will go number 13 was i'm your man interesting Mm -hmm. i think it just needs a little bit more buzz around it like i've also heard good things dan and the fact that it was an official selection already this early from a country that has a good history in this category speaks well Mm -hmm. to it but we'll have to see it's a strong year for the category so far, so. It is. Oh, this has, like, been one of the most exciting years that I can recall for this category. And the and the above-the-line potential for some of these films, too, is, like, mm-hmm. doubly more exciting. Yeah. I'm Your Man is another one that, in a just world, would be competing in the screenplay category as well. All right. Now, for this week's poll, we're asking everyone, it's the end of an era. Which James Bond film from the Daniel Craig era has been your favorite? Now, I know that you two have not seen No Time to Die yet, but as someone who has seen No Time to Die, I like if I was doing a ranking here, an overall ranking, I think for me personally, it would go Casino Royale number one, Skyfall number two. And those two were like literally neck and neck 
Um, I could even flip-flop if I really wanted to, but they're also so far above everything else. No Time to Die is, like, firmly square right in the middle because it does have some issues, but it's still an overall good movie, and it also is very... Uh, daring in the way that it bucks tradition that it just it, it stands out very very nicely then i would say specter is number four because quite honestly like as much as specter is kind of a mess there are still some redeemable elements about it that do make it a worthwhile watch still even if it doesn't all fully come together and then i think quantum of solace is just a complete misfire like i do not know why that movie is so so short i kind of hated at the time that it was a continuation of Casino Royale and I think um you know god bless him but uh Mathieu uh, Amaric is like one of the like just worst probably the worst Bond villain in the Craig era as well like I I don't even remember I really don't remember much about that movie to be honest with you <laughs> so that's how I would rank them is like Spectre and Quantum is like way down at the bottom no time to die squarely in the middle and then Casino Royale and Skyfall like way up at the top i mean cody you did a rewatch of all the james bond films to prepare for no time to die uh like how how are you feeling yeah not only was it a rewatch i had not seen any non-craigs before so yeah last spring i went through all the bond films in order when we you know <laughs> thought it'd be coming out it was a different time almost years ago. <laughs> yeah it was really and literally in every sense of the words a different time i do feel bad for the uh cast and crew that they're having to do the full press rounds for this movie twice <laughs> I feel like yeah. I, I wouldn't remember the movie like what happened in the movie. <laughs> I have to like describe or do interviews. Anyway, um, my thing with the Craig movies, when viewed as a whole with all the other James Bond movies, I think on the whole they're all they all have their redeeming factors. You know, to better or worse degrees, obviously, and the like divide between good and like less good Craig movies is so obvious. Like you said, Matt. That being said, I do think Casino Royale and Skyfall are just like so clearly, obviously the best of those of of this era. And also some of the best Bond films we've seen. Casino Royale actually is my number one Bond film, period. And then Skyfall's number three. So, you know, you can't really go wrong with either of those two right there. But, yeah, I'd have to go with Casino Royale. I'd be just curious to see uh, which one of those two ends up winning this poll overall when everything is said and done. Uh, Dan, what about you? Well, <laughs> so now that I've seen the Godfather films, the Bond franchise is probably my biggest overall cinematic blind spot. <gasps> Wait a minute. Um, Are you about to say what I think you're about to say? I have seen exactly one Bond film, and it was a really bad quality uh, DVD screener of Skyfall that even in shitty quality it looked amazing like deacon's cinematography is like fuck me gorgeous um, <laughs> jesus but oh roger <laughs> dan bear bringing new definition to the term dp <laughs> no let's matthew it's sunday <laughs> our lord benedetta protect us all <laughs> <laughs> so when they did that. No. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> 
But yeah, so I, by default, I guess, have to say Skyfall because it's the only one. <laughs> yes, you do. By default. That's exactly what that means. <laughs> so for the record, uh, we are going to, it was originally on the podcast schedule for this upcoming week, but due to um, NYFF just being fucking madness uh in terms of scheduling for me um i had to cancel all of our podcast reviews that we were going to do this week and i'm going to push it off to next week so we will be reviewing no time to die on saturday but what i really want to do is once we have that kind of out of the way i would very much like to revisit casino royale and have us kind of reflect on uh, Daniel Craig's contribution towards the character, towards the franchise, and give Dan Bear an opportunity to see the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say when we, do, I have purposely been holding off so that when we do that review, I can watch Casino Royale for the first time. Yeah, so we were supposed to do it before No Time to Die. We'll just do it probably the week after is all. But I, I don't know which date we're gonna do it yet, but. Ah, man, Dan, if there's like a way that I could like Skype with you or be in the room with you when it happens, like something, I I would love that. Do you have it? Yeah, of course. Do I have it? Dan, come on. (laughs) I I mean, I assumed, but I didn't want to just assume. So like, well, let's find a time. I will be in the room with you. All right, let's do it. After NYFF, I can't do anything until this. Yeah, I can't oh, do anything no, until I, this is please. over. <laughs> please. <laughs> We're both in that same boat. All right. Well, head on over to the polls page, nextbestpicture.com, and cast a vote there for which James Bond film from the Daniel Craig era has been your favorite as we say goodbye to him playing this iconic character with No Time to Die releasing this weekend. And now what I want to do is I want to move over to a trailer. We got the trailer this week from MGM Studios for the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, officially titled Licorice Pizza, starring Alana Haim, Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, real-life son, Bradley Cooper, Sean Penn, Tom Waits, Benny Safdie. Uh, the trailer was playing across theaters all across the country and finally released online. It's going to be released later on this year. Um very, very much looking forward to it because, let's face it, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. How can anyone not be excited for a new PTA film? Let's take a look at the trailer. I'm at the girl I'm Mary one day. But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady. But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. To the seat with the clearest view wow, 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 wow. And she's hooked to the silver screen Do you know who I am? Yeah Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand Sand Sand, yeah, like sands Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? No, but Streisand Sand But the film is a sad thing for This is faith that brought us together But she's lived it ten times or more Our roads took us here She could spit in the eye you're not my director. They ask her to focus on. Do you really want to see my boobs? Can I touch them? See tomorrow. Don't you think it's weird to hang out with Gary and his friends all the time? I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. 
forget you. It's like you're not gonna forget me. Cross. The rowback quality that could be reminiscent of something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, on top of that, there is this coming-of-age love story at the center of all of it. The runtime is the shortest uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film he's had since Punch Drunk Love. It's like 100, 100 minutes long from what I understand. The vibe of the trailer, uh, as been said by a lot of people, is giving off um, almost famous vibes. So when you couple all the stuff together in terms of it looking like it's going to be um, a throwback film, but also maybe this wholesome, cute story that could be a crowd pleaser. I don't know. Just something is coming together for me and saying that, like, maybe this could be uh, the film for PTA that in terms of it being like a quote unquote hangout movie, like this is a kind of film that could win where something like Linklater's Boyhood did it or Once Upon a Time of Hollywood for Tarantino did not. But maybe under the direction of Paul Thomas Anderson could go all the way. Well, it's interesting that we're returning to the same time period and location as Boogie Nights, which Oscar-wise, you know, did well enough but couldn't quite crack into, um, you know, any higher categories than acting and writing. But I think with enough distance from the 70s, you know, we're a further 20 years removed from it. It really, like you said, Matt, is going to be a throwback to voters. It could be a coming like full circle type of movie for him. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's the narrative. I, it's really interesting to me that you mention all those things, Matt, and conclude that it's your number one for best picture at the moment. When to me, none of those things say surefire best picture nominee. Oh, I didn't even. say surefire. Like <laughs> you said, it's your number one pre- predicted winner in best picture right now. Oh, oh well, 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 let me clarify. Surefire nominee, I'll give you. Surefire winner, I mean, listen, it's early stages for a win, but. Don't we all agree that Belfast is kind of a placeholder at the moment? Yeah, but i i don't I don't see anything in the, about this movie like all the things you mentioned are things that the Academy, generally speaking, doesn't go for in Best Picture. I mean, movies about teenagers never win. No, but they are the kind of movies that I feel that maybe in a different era would have played better. I'm talking like in that era of films, like like in the 1980s, where you did have movies about real people like going through uh, very relatable, uh, you know, situations in life, things like Terms of Endearment or Rain Man, something that didn't have to be a quote unquote like epic, mm-hmm. if you will. Or I don't know, I kind of almost feel like we got a little bit of that last year with Nomadland as well. Uh, so I don't think this movie has to be like a 
big movie in order to be the best picture winner. I think it just needs to be the most agreed upon film that people like. And everything about this trailer said to me that this is a movie that I think cinephiles are going to love, that I think general audiences could potentially fall in love with the same way that they did with something like Lady Bird, for example. Yes, the famous Oscar-winning Best Picture Lady Bird. Okay, all right, fine. But you (laughs) also have to agree that the difference there is Greta Gerwig was new. PTA has paid his dues. He's been nominated like eight times, I think, at this point, if I remember correctly. Uh, Cooper's also been nominated God knows how many times I think also eight you know and like I said before before the trailer even released I had Cooper and the screenplay already winning so mm-hmm. why not just combine those two which we normally see coincide with best picture win and just go all the way with it I I, I kind of agree to me Cooper and supporting actor that is truly a placeholder Sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Until we know what like, exactly the part is and how big it is. Yeah. I mean, his bit, his bits here in the trailer, you know, smashing cars and you know, Barbra Streisand, like th- those do look like you know, scene stealing uh, moments for him. But we don't know, obviously, in terms of overall screen time, how much yeah. he's going to factor. I think it would also feel weird at this point because Oscars are so enamored of him nomination wise, at least in a almost cruel way, that if his win was to come from a fairly small part in a supporting role in somebody else's movie at this point, it, it would definitely reek of just we need to get to him. Yeah. And this was our way to do it. Sort of. Now we got it out of the way. We can move on. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, I think it. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you there, Cody. Like, he does feel like he's done such incredible work these past few years that rewarding him a best actor or best director feels more suitable. But uh, I don't know. I I see him smashing up cars and screaming into the camera, and I think that's a best supporting actor nominee right there. It definitely looks potentially baity. The question is, is he actually a decent supporting part in the movie or is he a glorified cameo right and unfortunately like supporting has to mean like co-lead these days you know it's not like the 70s anymore so if he's on screen for like five minutes or less it's probably not gonna happen also too johnny greenwood is doing the uh score for this movie and i i I had a sudden uh thought last night yeah Yeah. after watching um the french dispatch for a second time at new york film festival like it suddenly occurred to me Desplat is doing Nightmare Alley, French Dispatch. Johnny Greenwood is doing this, uh, Spencer, and The Power of the Dog. And, of course, Hans Zimmer's got Dune. And I was just like, what if the original score category this year is just those three names? Because, like, Desplat and Greenwood get double just nominated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I would truly be legendary. Right? That would be insane. Uh, and also would, you know, coincide with, uh, you know, what we know about that branch in terms of them always voting for their favorites. Yeah, uh, but interested in hearing what Johnny Greenwood brings to this, because I very much liked his uh, score for um, Inherent Vice. Um, and that's another film that I was at first a little worried that this would be compared to tonally. But the trailer seems to be selling it as a very different kind of movie overall. I- I'll just like everyone I think knows, but I'll just clarify. I'm not the biggest fan of Inherent Vice. But in terms of it just being like kind of a throwback type of film, it looks more polished less hazy and more coherent i mean a hundred minutes it kind of has to be (laughs) yeah and i know i compared it to boogie nights just in terms of setting earlier but there's a lot of comparisons you can draw to other films in this filmography uh but the tone looks to be the closest to something like punch drunk love that we've had in a long time from pta yeah and obviously that's you know 
<laughs> the most recent film of his that got zero nominations. So maybe awards wise, that's not the most favorable comparison. But like mm-hmm. in terms of what we're looking for in his filmography, that's what I was most drawn to in the trailer was the warmth and the kind of, you know, the that David Bowie song does a lot to sell this, but that kind of nostalgic uh, like glow to the movie. Also, too, I mean, you know, how can you not be excited at seeing what Cooper Hoffman potentially brings to this as well i know that we just kind of went through that with uh michael gandolfini and uh yeah well yeah that didn't work for me as much but i am genuinely interested in seeing how uh cooper his performance comes across here considering um the close relationship that his father had with uh with pta the um number of times in this trailer that he looks like he could be playing uh, Patrick Fugit's brother in Almost Famous <laughs> is like a little creepy. I, I like I genuinely would not be surprised if that is, you know, the tone of this movie when all is said and done. I really would not be surprised. And there are a lot of people, myself included, who feel that Almost Famous was the best film of 2000 and should have walked away with more nominations than it received. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it won screenplay. So, yeah, I'm feeling really good about this. Truthfully, I really, really am. I like I said, like I think it looks nice. I'm not. The trailer did not do anything to like amp up my expectations for the movie, but I certainly not not looking forward to it. Also, too, the uh, platform release for this movie is wild. It's getting released and limited on November 26th, and then going wide a month later on Christmas. That is a really good i feel like that's a good strategy like build buzz starting at thanksgiving and build it through december so that people hear about it and want to see it on christmas it'll sustain the life of it too yeah because a lot of films nowadays they release they go wide and then they're forgotten about like in a three-week time span um yeah this is like kind of being done in a way where and it especially coinciding of course with award season where um i i really think that this is a very smart strategy for them yeah of course, the question will all be, does it gain that kind of foothold that it needs to in order to really compete with the big boys on Christmas? Right. We'll see. All right. And now let's end this week with uh, questions from the fans. And let's see what the MVP film community had to ask us this week. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And shut I wonder who the cat can God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. Go by the James Robert Scott, have any of you seen or are planning on watching the following Netflix masterpieces? My Little Pony, A New Generation, Diana, The Musical, and Escape the Undertaker. <laughs> no. No, but I will just say for the record that I've been hearing a lot about, obviously, Midnight Mass, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to watching oh, yeah. once the film mm-hmm. festival circuit is over. But there's another thing that I've been seeing a lot of buzz about called Squid Game. Yeah. I don't know what the hell this thing is. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, I, 
Yeah. I watched a trailer for it today and I was like, this looks like a lot of fun. I, I kind of want to check this out now. It's one of those things where like all of a sudden you just see everyone talking about this random show and it, it's like, wh- where did this come from? Right. And come to me in a week and see if anybody's still talking about it because that's the way Netflix yeah. works. Well, I'll let you know once I'm done with the film festival because I plan on watching both of those. Have fun. Scott Kernan, even if France doesn't select Titan as its international feature contender for the Oscars, do you think it stands a chance at doing well at, say, the BAFTAs, where uh, Duke Arnaud possibly could get a nomination there uh, despite the unpredictable jury system? I mean, if any, if last year was any indication at all, I mean, yes. Yeah, I think that's a place where she would actually stand a better chance than at the Oscars. Oh, definitely. Not to mention, I like, I'm sorry, but like, I, I, while I do think that Jane Campion, especially on a rewatch this past week of The Power of the Dog, like, I feel a lot better about that movie than I did after the first viewing. I still think Julia, along with Jane Campion, I think both of them are in the conversation to be uh, uh, the female nominated director this year because I don't know how you can watch Titan and. Other than being put off, obviously, by certain elements of it, I mean, just her her vision for that movie is out of this world tremendous. And I feel like that's something that directors should recognize and respect. Yeah, and just the craft on display is so strong, but also so bold and brazen that, like, I, I, I think directors would gravitate towards that work. I think it it's not an accident that this is the... The film that won the Palme d'Or from a jury headed by Spike Lee. Yeah, and I think we're at a point, and this has been, you know, a long time coming, where every single year that there's not at least one female uh, Best Director nominee, there's going to be outcry, as there should be. So mm. not to say that there's, like, a female director slot, but, like, you know, to your point, Matt, right now Jane Campion and uh, Julia are the only ones who uh, buzz-wise probably have the chance to get in. <laughs> Film of Atreides asks, is being the Ricardos coming out this award season? <laughs> the answer is yes. I've gotten confirmation from multiple people uh, that that movie is coming out. I will freely admit that we're getting close to the point where it's like, where's the trailer? Where's the poster? Is there a, is there a date something? But given that it is Amazon uh, Prime Video, they could announce this thing just a month before it releases yeah. in December if they wanted to. All hail King Shark. With The Last Duel seemingly unlikely in Above the Line nominations and House of Gucci now being an unknown quantity, does Ridley Scott? what does Ridley Scott have to do to finally win an Oscar? Well, I wouldn't say that Last Duel is uh, you know, not going to happen above the line. Jodie Comer, I think, is a very good chance. But Ridley Scott-wise, yeah, I don't think that's happening this year. What he needs to do is make an alien-level, unqualified masterpiece. But even then, if it's like a genre film, I still don't think that that would be enough. I think that his best chances of winning at this point are not for him to win for director, but to be a producer and win Best Picture. Yeah, how, how much regret do you think he has that he didn't produce Gladiator? <sighs> Oh God! <laughs> I mean, he practically did. <laughs> I. That's the that's the crazy thing. It's like, why doesn't he have producer credit? Right. I mean, as the director, he did produce the film. He brought it into the world, but he didn't, you know, produce it. <sighs> I wouldn't rule out the possibility yet of him doing well with House of Gucci. I'm not quite there yet in terms of saying, oh, this is going to be a flop. Although 
the recent reports that it's close to three hours long uh, are giving me a little bit of pause. <laughs> Here's the thing with Ridley Scott. I don't – everybody's like it's either got a win best picture or it's a flop. Most Ridley Scott films are just fine. And they yeah, exactly. You know, like all the money in the world is like a total five out of ten of a movie. And that's where most of his movies land. So I, I think that's where we're heading towards with Hasaguchi because I've heard that the trailer is a good indication of what the film's tone is going to be like, which is good news for me. <laughs> I mean it looks a lot like American Hustle in that regard to me. It does, yeah. Sure. Uh, Lane's 2021. Uh, what has been your favorite score from the Fall Film Festival movies that you've seen so far? Ooh. Well, I haven't seen it. I was going to say. But listening to it, uh, the Dune score, I think, is pretty undeniably great. <laughs> yeah, that's my number one, obviously. I mean, it's a great combination of uh, just musicality and uh, like uh, chorus. It's It really does a lot to transport you to the world they're creating while also keeping a foot in our world, which I think is smart for such a movie that's, you know, so fantastical. I will go to bat for Johnny Greenwood's score for The Power of the Dog. Same. It is Same. almost too good for the movie. <laughs> I, uh, I, got, I mean, and on top of that, too, I, I got to re-listen to it again. But his score for Spencer is also just as good, in my opinion. <laughs> God, like, it's incredible. Like what, like I said earlier, I, I really do think that Hitman Desplot could be double nominated and Zimmer just has the one. If that if that ends up happening. Uh, Zimmer might win uh, his second Oscar, only his second, which is in- something else entirely uh, that's beyond and me. It's but time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was for Lion King, which is a beautiful yeah. score, but it's really not reflective of his work lately. No. Yeah. Which I think Dune is. Uh, having listened to it a couple of times, it's like a mixture of Gladiator meets Blade Runner 2049 meets, you know, some elements of the Dark Knight and then also some new elements that we've never heard him do before. And there's like, it really, it, man, like the, like I said, it's undeniable work. I don't see how you listen to it and don't nominate it. And I haven't even seen it in context with the movie yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the good, the uh, you know, additional good news is that Hans Zimmer, after Inception, was like stuck replicating that oh. score for like yeah. eight years, and this is not that. You know, it's definitely that type of similar epic, you know, big instruments, big orchestra kind of score, but it's totally its own thing. With that said, I would not be surprised if Johnny Greenwood did win. Uh, for I, I would put my money on Power of the Dog right now, but. I don't know. We'll see. It's a very, very exciting race right now. I honestly, the after the number of times that Johnny Greenwood should have won and got mm-hmm. disqualified, he deserves the double nomination. And or won <laughs> even with the nomination. Yep. Yeah. So Connor Olin is asking of the best picture contenders, regardless of quality, which one do you think has a strong enough, quote unquote, narrative that would make voters want to vote for it? I okay. Hear me out. Dune. Okay, what's the narrative? The narrative is America go back to the movie theaters. I think that also based on our recent predictions, uh like we have Dune winning a lot of stuff right now. Like we have it in number 1 for sound, visual effects, score, mm. um I think it's also number one for cinematography with us right now, even too. like there's a lot of stuff that we have it doing really well with that 
I am wondering if a lot of this could add up. But the thing that's holding me back about it, though, Dan, mm. is all the reports that I've heard about it uh, where people are saying that it really truly does feel more like Fellowship of the Ring where it's like the story's not complete yes. yet and they exactly. might want to hold off on part two, especially if part two exceeds this movie. Yeah. Then they it might might be a reward for Denny for the whole vision at that point. That's yeah. exactly the thing. This is explicitly half of the story. It's mm. It cannot be understated how much of a non-complete, you know, narrative this is and yeah i think voters will be hesitant to throw it best picture like you said because you know they're it's not like godfather part one which is like its own thing it's it's dune part one is dune part one um but to your point you know after i saw it i was as skeptical as anybody as to its oscar chances but you know when you watch it it's winning two oscars it's getting nominated for another four and you know once you hit that threshold it's really difficult in this era, especially with a solid 10 to not get into best picture. Um, so I don't really see it winning just because of the type of movie it is, but I guess that's the narrative it would be. Um, yeah. if it were to happen, how do you feel about Denny and director though, Cody? Uh, let's see where I have him now. I felt better about him after seeing it. Uh, and you know, it's, it's closer to his work and arrival than you would think, which obviously got him a nomination. I have him like number nine though, because like the way that branch works, I don't think that'll happen. Um, but uh, yeah, narrative wise, I'm not really quite sure. I mean, I guess you could say something about uh, power of the dog. If like Jane Campion kind of does become uh, like a drumbeat best director winner, like giving her best picture also. But I mean, in terms of like, narrative in a twitter sense i don't really see much going on here this year i think the narrative for me is probably uh, i think the narrative is belfast because it's a way to honor kenneth brana and this being such a personal project for him uh, yeah like i don't know i feel that that it's also a movie that focuses a lot on community on family like these are things that we obviously are holding more dear to our hearts uh, post-COVID now than ever before. It's a lot about home. And, and it's about the movies, too, to a degree, uh, right? I, I, I would say narrative-wise, that's probably the one that feels the strongest right now. Yeah, I saw the Belfast trailer on the big screen the other day, and that looks like a Best Picture winner. You know, regardless of, like, quality or whatever, that just looks like <laughs> the type of movie that voters love, especially nowadays with the preferential ballot. It is so strange because it really does feel like a best picture movie even while you're watching it. But there is something about it that when it actually finishes, it feels a lot smaller than a best picture winner, at least these days, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I I, I get what you're saying, Dan, having seen it myself. Yeah, I like, feel like lately, like, though, the way to win Best Picture is to not be huge. You know, like movies like uh, Parasite, uh, narrative wise, it's like, yeah, Parasite, Birdman, Spotlight are very focused and very character based. And then, like, you know, the big movie wins Best Director. So I think that actually might help it out. I haven't well, seen it yet. Obviously, you two have. So, you know, <laughs> tell me if I'm yeah. wrong. But it's, it's when I say that there's something about the emotional arc of the film, like that it doesn't. <sighs> For me, anyway, like it doesn't explode at the end. Sure. Um, it's, okay, it's not so, like the power of the dog where it kind of like implodes, but it doesn't end with like 
fireworks of a cheer it ends on a more muted note and gotcha. i think that's the thing that's sort of holding me back like this it is the kind of movie that would win best picture if it becomes transcendent and for me anyway it stopped like just short of that um it, great movie but I, I, it still doesn't feel like having seen it it doesn't there is something that's holding me back from saying it's absolutely winning best picture it makes sense a lot now um, in a way that something like Dune doesn't. And I don't think, <laughs> to be clear, I don't think that Dune will win Best Picture. <laughs> but I think the narrative of, like, this is a big screen spectacle from an industry that clearly wants us to go back to the movie theaters, I think that's a stronger narrative than most of the other films in the conversation. Anybody saying something is absolutely winning Best Picture in October is doing their right. job. So. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you on that. I think that there are always early front runners that emerge from the fall film festivals. Um, the question is, you know, can it maintain uh, the momentum through these next couple of months? You know, obviously, 12 Years a Slave did, albeit from heavy competition from Gravity. The Artist did. Nomadland clearly did, although last year was an anomaly of a year, in my opinion. Belfast is in that position right now. Belfast is the early front runner. There is no doubt about it. Belfast is the movie that if you're doing your Oscar predictions, you probably should have it number one. However, the question you have to ask yourself is, can it be the front runner literally from now all the way until the end unchallenged? Or is there something else that is going to come along that will supplant it? And my personal guess right now is that there will be something that else that will come along. That's why I currently have licorice pizza at the moment. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of other ways that this can go, right? Kenneth Branagh could still be recognized maybe for director, uh, but maybe not, but something else wins Best Picture. Um, maybe Denis Villeneuve does win director, but Dune doesn't win Best Picture, and that's the way to acknowledge uh, the big screen spectacle narrative that you're saying there, Dan, uh, of Denis kind of bringing us all back. You know, the film also being a, a tech hall movie, like, say, Mad Max Fury Road, which, you know, George Miller should have won that Oscar, uh, maybe Denny can make that happen. And then there's another narrative, which is Guillermo del Toro with Nightmare Alley, uh, you know, winning a second best director Oscar along with Alejandro and Alfonso. And there's a nice kind of narrative to that as well. Oh, I didn't God. even think of that. Oh, my God. Like, could you imagine if they uh, it, let's imagine just for a second, if Guillermo was the front runner to win director again and the night of the Oscars, they do what they did when Martin Scorsese won for The Departed, and they bring out both Alfonso and Alejandro as the presenters. Like, I would just be, like, beside myself. I would die. <laughs> because, like, on one hand, it's like, you better be right. Don't play it cute. Remember the last time the Oscars tried to play cute? Joaquin Phoenix looked awkward as fuck up there holding that envelope. <laughs> so it's like, I always get nervous when they do stuff like that. But at the same time, that narrative for Guillermo kind of does write itself, doesn't it? If that movie, would be a narrative yeah. if we're out of narratives. You know what I mean? That's yeah. if everything else is failing. It's, well, I guess here's a reason to celebrate this happening. Yeah. But the really cool thing right now is that it's early enough that all these narratives like could still like take shape. And there's also stuff that could be completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. Like could come out of nowhere still. We still don't know anything about Tick, Tick, Boom. We still don't really know anything about Don't Look Up. We still don't know... Uh, Obviously, we touched upon it earlier, but how far House of Gucci actually will yeah, go. And West Side Story. So there's a lot of really uh, exciting elements that are still up in the air that could change the tra trajectory of this race. And that's why I think Belfast is vulnerable at this time. 
yeah, although if all these late-breaking movies do fail on some level, I don't know what could challenge Belfast. Nope, I, I think that's its path at that point. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that'll do it here for this week's episode of the Next Best Picture podcast. Cody Derricks, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. Dan Bear. Find me on Twitter at DancingDanOnFilm. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 263 of the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, drop us a comment. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get exclusive podcast content from us, including, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to try and put up a throwback review of Casino Royale, and we're going to try and do an audio commentary for David Lynch's 1984 version of Dune, which I am very, very curious to watch and comment on with you all um if, oh, if we do Lord. pull this off and this does happen this will only be the second audio commentary that we've ever uh recorded before but i thought in terms of just kind of fitting in with uh the release of dune this month uh this would be the perfect opportunity to revisit a movie that quite frankly i don't think that we need to do a full podcast review on since we'll obviously be talking about denny's definitive version of this story but we can still have a lot of fun discussing Dune on an audio commentary, I think. So looking forward to that. And yeah, thank you all so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.